0: I'm going to begin reading from the end of Galatians 3 and read through chapter 4 verse 7. Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world." But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that you would truly speak to our hearts. That by the Holy Spirit, you would teach us these things. Cause us to meditate on them and to understand them and walk in them. Again, we pray that you would use these things to proclaim your glory to us, but also that we might walk in them to be built up to be a glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oksana Masters was born in 1989 about 200 miles from Chernobyl just three years after that nuclear disaster in that infamous place. She told a reporter for the NPR radio show Only a Game. She said, I was missing the main weight-bearing bone in both legs. And the left leg, I didn't have a full knee. It was a floating knee. I had six toes. My hands were webbed, and I also have only one kidney. I don't have a full bicep on my right side. Thank God my hair didn't get ruined. I could use a little more body, but I'm happy with it. (laughs) Oksana is a double amputee. She's now 29 years old. And she's at this moment in South Korea, representing the United States in the Olympic Winter Games, as a cross-country skier and biathlete. And while that was intriguing to me and very interesting and wondering how in the world someone who's missing two legs could do something I can't do with two good legs, ski, and shoot a rifle at the same time. What intrigued me more or caught my attention more is that Oksana was given up as a baby for adoption by her mother. And I don't know the reason, but she spent eight years in three different orphanages in the former USSR And she told the reporter that there were many nights where she went to bed without food. Or perhaps the only thing she had to eat in the day was a cup of soup or perhaps a piece of bread. And she was abused. And her best friend, uh, when they got up one night uh, and tried to sneak down to the kitchen because they were so hungry, the pain in their stomachs gnawing at them, they were caught. And she never saw her friend again. All they would tell her was, well, your friend got sick and she died. When potential adoptive parents visited the orphanage, Oksana, desperate to leave, would wonder, is this my mother? Is this my family that I will go home to? I hope they choose me. Now, I was not adopted, and I don't know too many people who were adopted And I think it's hard for me sometimes to read the scriptures where we read about our adoption as sons and daughters. We become princes and princesses of God Almighty. To understand what it's like to be in an orphanage, to be without parents and wonder Will someone ever choose me? Will someone take me away from what was obviously a very painful and a very terrifying ordeal for this young lady? And yet here we are in Galatians where Paul proudly proclaims to us and explains to us that we receive the adoption as sons if we are in Christ. And here we see Paul kind of doubling back to some things that he has already told us in chapter 3 about belonging to Christ, what it means to be in Christ, to be heirs along with Those who are Abraham's seed according to promise. But he clarifies some of these thoughts now in chapter 4, as well as introducing others. And he uses some new illustrations and the one we look at this morning about the heir. The one who is a child or a minor. What is Paul, how does Paul connect that to our faith, to our salvation? And to be fair, there are a lot of commentators who take issue with Paul in this entire uh, seven verses here. That it's not clear, and it is not clear to us what Paul is referencing there's we can't find scholars anyway have not found a, a law book or a textbook that says oh well, well, Paul was referring to Roman law or, or to Greek law or, or some kind of Hebrew law that we um, was, was uh, written by the rabbis at that time there's there's nothing that that Fits a, a definitive pattern that we can find, and yet we see that, that Paul applies these things generally to both Jews and Gentiles uh, comprehensively a, as people, as, as humans. But he doesn't directly address the Galatian believers, I believe, until verse 6. And yet we see the picture that he paints. He's going back to that theme that we've talked about some, the before and the after. The the distinction to show the freedom of believers in Christ is not in conflict with their formerly being under the law. He goes back perhaps to uh, connect us to verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. But he does warn us that we must use the law properly. That we must see what its use is for. And how we as believers now on this side of the cross. The after the Christ event, how we use the law. And so it begins with something that is is fairly familiar to all of us and to, uh, I think, most cultures around the world, the idea of of an inheritance, a common uh, inheritance type of procedure And yet, he expands that to his experience as a Jew. Let's read in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now I say, or this I would add, as long as the heir is a child, a minor, underage, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner literally, the Lord of everything. And that, we see that in the world. Uh, if you look at some of the, particularly in England, I was looking at a, a, some of the, the, the dukes and duchesses. They, they have little earls that are to, to inherit, in some cases, billions of dollars. And one of them recently went to court to change the date at which their son could inherit because he needed to learn some things. He needed to, to grow up some more. And so they postponed that date in which he would inherit from them their, the fortune. The heir is a minor. He has not yet reached the legal age, to claim or receive his inheritance. And again, people say, well, Paul's too vague here, but it could be that the father has died. He's thinking of one where the father has died, but he is not of age. He is not mature enough to inherit and manage it yet. Or he hasn't reached the age that the father established. Or that there was a date that the father set that this was the day in which in uh, advanced from this date you will inherit. But we get the idea. We don't need to know the specifics. The child was under care and supervision of others selected by the father. He uses two words here, the, the guardians and the managers. And, and they were very closely related. One was the epitropos, which essentially tells us he was an overseer. He was one who had supervision of the day-to-day activities of the minor. He was charged with the responsibility and and the care and upbringing of the young man. And the manager, in my version, or some versions, the steward, was the Uh, you With the word we get our economy from. And you can imagine, he was the one who dealt with the property. He was the one, I I would call him a trustee. He he was the one who looked after the finances, looked after the property. He did not own the property, but he acted as if he did. He was in charge of buying and selling. He would have been in charge of directing either work to be done or the workmen. Uh, he, he would he would make decisions as related to the property, but regardless of their exact job descriptions, they were subordinates. Why? Because they didn't own the property, and they were not the miner's father. They were only to manage and watch out for him for a time. There was a time limit on their authority or their responsibilities. But Paul says something that perhaps is shocking, that the fact that he is under these overseers... Until the time set by the Father, he does not differ at all, or he is no better off than a slave, even though he is the Lord of everything. The miner and the slave, as one commentator put it, lack the capacity of self determination that is their commonality they had no freedom to give orders they were not in control of the property they had no say in what direction their training would take and so in that sense they were no better than a slave Even though they were the owner of everything. Yes, he is the Lord. It all belongs to him. He will have freedom in using it someday. But his daily routine does not reflect that right now. He is under the supervision of guardians and stewards. Paul says, likewise. He says, so also we, in verse 3, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. The idea, the phrase, the elemental things of the world, What Paul actually had in his mind when he wrote this, I think it's impossible for us to tell. If some of you went through Chuck's study in Hebrews, we got to chapter 5, and it talks about the elemental things of the world. And that evening, Chuck gave us a little chemistry Uh, lesson, talking about this word, the word we would get stoichiometry from, the stoikos means that which is the irreducible component, it's the rudimentary things, it's the elementary things of the world. And some believe that Paul had in mind what was the elementary things of the world at that time in first century AD was, was the, the elements. But they were not the elements of the periodic table. They would be earth and air and water and fire. But these irreducible components also could mean things like and it literally means things in a string or things in a column and so the elementary things if we think of children would be the ABC's some of you are some of you have children learning those one of the children uh, two weeks ago recited the ABC's for me while we were standing in line for Fellowship luncheon, and invited me, next time won't you sing with me. (laughs) They also could be the notes on the musical scale, the elementary things of the world. But Paul uses this phrase, elementary things, as I say, in other places, could be of a different sort. The principles, he says in Colossians 2 verse 8, the principles of philosophy and empty deceit that Paul warns us not to get entangled in. Or even in this passage that we'll look at in the future in Galatians 3 verses 9 and 10. The, the weak and worthless elemental things of this world. For Paul, I don't think he's dwelling on the ABCs and the do re mi's. I believe that for Paul, the elemental things of this world, as the analogy he's writing, we are under bondage to them There is something demonic here. There is something devilish about these things. Something as he calls them gods who are no gods. But whether Jew or pagan, he says all are under bondage. We're in slavery, we're enslaved to the inferior and slavish forms of things of this world. And those things of this world, I think we could say, are religion. (coughs) Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. Most of the world treats it as a religion, but that is because most of the world lives their own religion. As one commentator put it, we are, quote, hardwired legalists. Not so much that we follow, although many of us do, follow lists of do's and don'ts religiously, but I think that's to misunderstand what legalism is. We point the finger at those who say, well, I have to dress a certain way or drive a certain car or do certain things. But I think we miss what legalism really is. Legalism is being self-justified. I'm not as bad... There's my neighbor. I always try my best. I keep the rules. I haven't committed any really, really bad sins. We feel justified by the things that we do. We feel justified by the religious way in which we live we feel justified by our morality, justified by the ceremonies that we participate in, our rituals, our traditions. But the purpose of the law was for our minority. While we were under age, The purpose of the law was to show us our sins, to prove to us our inability, to drive us to Christ. If we don't use the law for its intended purpose, it is a slave master. It is no better than a pagan religion. Think about it. Religion treats us as a child. Religion tells us what to do and where to do it and when to do it and how to do it. Certainly a slave master, well, he treats us as a slave. He does. Give us a system that binds us in the elemental things. No freedom. No ability to exercise judgment or independent thought or to engage in an enterprise or to engage in industry. We are slaves and we are in bondage to that system. But, don't you love the the buts in Scripture? But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. Now there's no use, I would think, in trying to pinpoint exactly what the events were that fulfilled the time. Some of you have, have, have read things about this. I, I can remember an exercise that I had to do in seminary. You know, why was the time when Jesus born the fullness of time? And I read histories and I wrote a whole paper and, and now I, I'm ashamed that I actually wrote the paper. Because the fullness of the time does not, at least in this particular verse, in its context, it does not point us to the events. It does not point us to the the things. Uh, The analogy that I read that I think is very excellent. Think about pouring water into a glass. And you're you're filling up the glass and you want to fill that glass to the brim. You want it to be filled full. And as you pour and you put the drops in to bring it to the brim and you've got it and you go, okay, the glass is full. Now, can you Find the drop in that glass that fulfilled that glass? Does it matter which was the drop or the last three or four drops that went into that glass? That's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is that it was the right time. It was the time for fulfilling as set by the Father. And the emphasis is not on the events, but the emphasis is on what God did. And what he did changed everything. God sent forth his son. And that little phrase has two things. I I thought of this this week as I was studying this. You you come to the scriptures for a meal. And and you you get a banquet laid at the table. Two things packed into this. God sent forth his son. And I... I I had two uh, Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door yesterday morning and I almost stood on my porch and preached this message to them. God sent forth His Son. Jesus existed before He was sent. And the fact that He was sent forth says that He was in the place where He Was before he was sent out, that he was truly God. He was with God from eternity past. He was in communion with his Father, and the Father sent him forth. But the fact that he was sent forth means that Jesus was invested with divine authority. Jesus says of himself in John 17 that I have authority over all mankind. And he thanks the Father that he gave him that authority. Jesus was truly God. But Jesus was also truly man. He was born of a woman. There are many who make much of, try to pull out of that verse, the virgin birth. But I think Paul is simply telling us that Jesus was human. A genuinely human woman gave birth to him. He has true humanity. But he was also, as it says, born under the law. Jesus Christ was a Jew. He was born of those people who would be under the Mosaic law. He had to be circumcised. He had to keep the feasts and the ceremonies. He had to be presented at the synagogue. Jesus was a Jew. And what does it mean to be under the law? Again, there there is much written about this, and there's technical, I think, nuances of it. But essentially, to be under the law is to be under the control of or under the obligation of or as... Paul has already told us we were in bondage, verse 3, under the elemental things of the world. It was an enslavement, but Jesus had to be under the law in order to do what he came to do. Because we see the purpose of the sending of Jesus Christ Two purpose clauses, one after the other. And we see Christ redeeming and we see believers receiving. And the first thing you ought to notice about that is Christ redeeming and believers receiving is it's all of God. It's not of us, it's not of works, it's not of heritage. It's not of heredity, it's not in your genes, it's all of God. Redemption is simply the setting free by the payment of a price. We sang this morning of deliverance in Christ. But it's more than deliverance and more than a rescue. It is redemption. You were bought with a price. There is the sacrifice. We were slaves. We were in bondage to the elemental things of this world. But He redeemed us. He bought us. We were slaves. We could not afford to buy our freedom. We could not escape. We were held in enslavement to it. But Christ redeemed us. Christ paid the price. We were bought with a price and we were freed to a wonderful gift. And what is that gift that we receive? Adoption as son. Now, I will be honest that I don't know whether it's because that Christ redeemed us, as some take it, that we were adopted as sons, or as proof that Christ redeemed us, that we were adopted as sons. All I know is what the scripture tells me, is that I received this gift that I was adopted into the household of God. I was made a son. I was made to come to live with the Almighty and Merciful Father. For I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I couldn't work my way there and I couldn't have paid my own way to be there. But I received it. Because Christ redeemed me and gave it to me. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Christ gave us and sent his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God's Son, coming into the hearts of believers. Something is happening not on the outside, it's not external, it's something internal. He'd send it into our hearts, into our innermost being. The law can't touch the innermost being. The law is external. The law is limited that way. It can show us where we're wrong. It can show us where we fall short. It can show us that we Are all sinners, but it can't reach inside. It's always external. It doesn't reach to the heart, but the Spirit of Jesus does. And there are those, again, who would take this verse and show us crying. Abba, Father. But, but the subject of the verb, the subject of the crying, is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is crying into our hearts, Abba, Father. It, it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to see that we are sons, that we now have a Heavenly Father. He identifies the Father to us. Yes, this, this phrase, Abba, perhaps was taught to the Galatians by Paul. We, we think of Jesus. How did he start? When they said the disciples said, Teach us how to pray, he says, Pray like this. Our Father can can you imagine the magnitude of hearing that to to a people who were were used to working to to striving to to thinking i must better myself in order to be accepted by god and jesus says to them and paul says to them no Your cry is our Father. Think of the position that you have. Think of the awesomeness of that. That now, almighty God, we can call him our Father. It's the Spirit who enables us to call God our Father. Please. Please don't trivialize it by taking Abba Father as, Hey, Dad. Yes, it was an appellation. It was a name that had the deepest, most warm affection for the one that you call that name. But please don't trivialize it. Our God is an awesome God. He does love us and He does wrap us in His arms. But there is an approach to the throne of God with reverence and awe. So Paul teaches us that religion is of man, but Christianity is all of God. God set forth His Son. Christ redeemed us. The Holy Spirit cries in our hearts. Religion is man doing stuff, but Christianity is God fulfilling His promises. God is doing stuff. And he's doing incredible work in our lives every day. Religion is dehumanizing. Do slaves have any identity? Are slaves anything? No. Religion is dehumanizing, but Christianity is dignifying. Why? Because you're no longer a slave, now you are a son. You are a daughter of the King. Religion emphasizes the work of man, but Christianity emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Religion communes with its own achievements, does it not? Religion thinks, wow, what we have done, isn't God pleased with these things that we have built But Christianity is a true intimacy with God. Religion is, if I could use it with the lower case u, religion is Unitarian. It's finding out what works for you. You know, you've heard people say, well, whatever floats your boat. Well, I don't want to be on that boat. <laughs> but Christianity is thoroughly Trinitarian. God sending, Christ redeeming, the Holy Spirit crying in our hearts. There's your the theology of the Trinity, the Triune God, all in two sentences. And Paul says to us, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Now you're no longer a slave, you're a son. And if you're a son, you have that privilege All of this stuff that is given to you, all of the privileges that it it means to be a son, they are yours. You're no longer under the law, but you are sons of God. You were held in bondage in, in order that you might try To work your way to God in order that you might see whether you could become acceptable to God and realize you cannot. But now you have been redeemed. Now you have been redeemed from slaveship to sonship. But sonship is not natural. Sonship is conferred. It is given to us because you receive the adoption. You didn't work your way to it. But you are sons. And if a son, then an heir. You are the possessor of great and precious promises. And you walk in the greatest privilege because you are a son and daughter in God's family in the household of God Almighty. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these things are, are wonderful. They are, they are high and we, we can hardly attain to them and so we do need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts, to help us understand these things, to help us grasp these things. But Father, I pray that we would also rejoice in these things, that we would walk in newness of life, that we would walk as sons and daughters of the King, that we would live our lives in a way that reflects that we have been adopted by the only Father, and now we can call you our Father, because we are your children. Father, we couldn't have done it, but you did. You changed us, you changed our lives, you changed everything, and we praise you, and we thank you, and we give you all the glory and praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from John, Chapter 8. This is Jesus speaking, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And when the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen.